Hey, Sanctus Church, welcome back. So glad that you are here. We're still in our major fall series out of 2 Timothy. Probably most of you know that. Would love you to grab a Bible, again, uh, virtually on a tablet or a phone or physically. That would be great. Uh, most of us don't tend to think about our end very much. That is our death. Now, maybe during this season a little bit more. But even more than that, most of us don't really think about our last words. But last words can reveal what hope we have, what hope we don't have, what we valued, what we didn't value, what our life was about, what our hope was in, or what our hope was not. I did this a few years ago. I want to do it again. Have you ever read famous people's last words? I mean, they're only human beings, but because they're famous, it's intriguing. Alfred Hitchcock, when he lay dying, his last words on earth were, one never knows the ending. One has to die to know exactly what happens after death, although Catholics, uh, they have their hopes. <laughs> Groucho Marx once said, or his last words were, this is no way to live. Karl Marx screamed at his housekeeper, get on and get out. Last words are for fools who have not said enough. Thanks, uh, uh, Frank Sinatra said, I'm losing it. Harry Houdini said, I'm tired of fighting. I guess this thing is going to get me. Joan Crawford also screaming at her maid as her maid began to pray, don't you dare ask God to help me. Hmm. Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest theologians in the last 2,000 years, one of the greatest minds in the church, also one of the greatest philosophic minds in history, read by secular and spiritual and Christian people all around the world today. I think he wrote 500 books. His last words, all is straw. This one um, actually made me feel quite sad. Leonardo da Vinci, I have offended God and humanity because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Wow. Steve Jobs just said, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Kurt Cobain, a leader in my generation for sure, said it's better to burn out than fade away. Hmm. Churchill just said, I'm bored with it all. John Belushi, as he was overdosing, screamed out, don't leave me alone. And Blaise Pascal said, may God never abandon me. That's why this letter in 2 Timothy is so very important. Because while Paul's in a maximum security jail cell, and he knows he is about to die, be executed for being a Christian, these are his last words. His last words to his friend Timothy, to the church that Timothy was leading, to the churches in that day, and to all of us. And even more impactful, I'd never thought about this before. These are the last words God decided to inspire Paul to write for the church in every single century that would follow. These are God's last words through Paul to us. Basically, if Paul was sitting one-on-one -on -one with Timothy, he was saying things like, I know things, Timothy, are tough struggling, uncertainty, fatigue. You put out one fire and five more fires pop up. But I need to show you how you need to continue to stand and suffer for the gospel in real time. You need to stand. And though the pressure on the outside is getting really bad, actually, you need to fight inside at the same time. Two fronts. You need to stand against false teachers. And you need to protect the community of God. And of course, any of us who know the Bible know that within the very first years of the Christian faith, there has always been a battle for the truth. Who is Jesus? The gospel. The demonic and human beings have always been trying to kill the good news since the beginning. It's like Paul saying to Timothy, hey, talk to any soldier. It's one thing to have a battle plan. It's another thing to be in the middle of a firefight. Nothing ever goes to plan. 
It's like building a house or doing a major reno project. There's always this large line called contingency because nothing ever goes truly to what? Plan. Timothy, I know it's hard. I know I'm leaving. I know I'm about to be killed. I know this is a pressured moment from the outside. But in this really tough in-the-corner moment, as persecution is dismantling Christian leadership, you must endure, you must persevere, and you need to face down the ongoing threat of false teaching in your own church. Now, I know by this point some leaders have already been confronted, but the damage in Timothy's church had been done. It was still affecting the church, contaminating the church, the leftovers were so dangerous. Now, this came home to me this week when uh, I was online and this just came up on my feed. Uh, two weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago in Poland, uh, the government found an unexploded bomb that the Royal Air Force, the British Air Force, had dropped on the German community, on the German army in that area in the last few months of the war. This is 74 years old. And to their horror, they found that this, what they call a tall boy, this 12,000 pound bomb was still live and yet unexploded. They immediately evacuated like 740 people. No one was hurt and they were able to explode it. But it had been sitting there for 74 years, just there. If it had been tapped wrong, could have killed so many. Later this week, I did more research. It's like landmines around the world. In 64 countries, there's an estimated 110 million landmines still in the ground just waiting to kill. What shocked me this week is I found out that landmines cost only $3 to $30. Think about that, to build. But actually, to remove them is $300 to $1,000. In other words, if we had the ability to remove every landmine on earth, it would cost $50 to $100 billion. You're saying, John, why are you talking about this? Because this is what false teaching is like. It's cheap and small at the beginning, and it sits there, and no one knows it's there for a while, and it grows and grows, and suddenly, unexpectedly, while you're persevering, you step on it, and it brings death. And the work to remove it, once it's discovered, to dislodge it is so unbelievably hard. It's like the brilliant line in the movie Inception when they said, an idea is like a virus. It's resilient, highly contagious, and even the smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define you or destroy you. So what to do? Well, here's what Timothy hears from Paul. 2 Timothy 2.14. Timothy Keep reminding God's people of these things. Keep moving God's people back to the truth of God, to the gospel, to the scriptures, to the non-negotiable truth. Keep preaching, keep warning, because this landmine has eternal consequence. So we need to stop. Hey, Sanctus Church, let's all stop, and you are visiting. And let's review. What has Paul outlined so far in chapter 1 and half of chapter 2 that is non-negotiable? Well, here's what he said. Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Jesus is equal with God, the Father, which means he must be God because you can't be equal with God and not be him. Jesus was a real person. Jesus comes from the line of David. In other words, Jesus is not myth, but rooted in history. Jesus really physically died. Jesus died on a cross. And that humiliating act of a cross, which thousands of people had seen, millions of people had seen in this time, that was the place, though offensive to Greek thinking and theologically redefining for Jewish thinking, that place of a common criminal act of death is where God changed the world. Jesus didn't just physically die. Jesus physically rose from the dead. And God's salvation 
true that act has nothing to do with us. God, it's by his purpose, his calling, and his grace revealed through Jesus, the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's destroyed death. He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. All of that's non-negotiable. In other words, if you're listening today and you say, I don't believe in some of that, you're not a Christian yet. That, that's part of the deal. But then here's the question. What happens when Christians or so-called Christian leaders begin to dispute or begin to fudge the lines, begin to change the boundaries? What happens when false teaching begins to root itself in the minds and the hearts and the thinking of a local church? And and what I want to say, I actually said in the series that we did out of Galatians. And we really need to catch this. Most false teachers don't know they're false teachers. Most wolves in sheep clothing think they are sheep and shepherds. Almost all false teachers don't think they're giving up on the good news, but they're helping the good news. They're improving on the good news and protecting God. Let me give you a Star Wars reference. Just so important. Like most of us, when we think about false teaching, think about like Senator Palpatine, right? For you or Star Wars people, you know what I mean. He appears good on the outside. He's doing all this good stuff. But on the inside, he's a Sith Lord and he's planning to destroy the universe and take right. The problem, according to the scriptures, is most false teachers think that they're Jedi. Well, they're actually Sith Lords. That's why this is so scary and concerning. Let me read the verse again. 2 Timothy 2.14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God about against quarreling about, about words. It has no value. It only ruins those who listen. Now, the word quarreling here means word fight. Now, in this case, Paul is not talking about quarreling in general. This is not about how to be a better Christian on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Though, stop and side note, most of the word fights I observe online, quarreling online, really has no value at all. Word fights these days bring hopelessness, division, and lies, and relational death. Most posts online bring no value but ruin those who listen. So just as a side note, though it's not the original context, Christians should not be known for quarreling. Hmm. But the context here is Paul is writing to Timothy, who's dealing with false teachers in his own church. And what he's saying is this quarreling is connected to false teaching. These false teachers are using word fights to sway people over and to sway the church over, which will lead to its destruction. They're going to step on the landmine. So Timothy... What do you do in this situation? And think about this. Paul uses some of his last words to deal with this issue. And he says, what makes you different, Timothy, than a false teacher? Well, first and foremost, he says, let's start with you as a person. Verse 15, do yourself, do your your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Okay, Timothy, make every effort to do what I'm about to tell you. You pursue this with everything you are. And there are two major tells. One, what's the focus of your life, your ministry, your everything? It's to be God-centered. It's in him, by him, for him, to him. I love when others thinking on this passage pointed out that those that are truly following Jesus, though hard, tend to want self-reflection and tend to want accountability. They want to be near the one they love. They want to be near God, to be encouraged and challenged. They want encouragement and rebuke from God. False teachers tend to look to their audience, their agenda, not God's word, not being near God, but for their thing they want to accomplish. Ooh. 
The second he says is not only do you need to be God-centered, you need to be unashamed of the gospel. Don't be a leader who's ashamed of the gospel. Be unashamed of the gospel and handle the word of truth correctly. Now, this idea is amazing. That that phrase, handle the word of truth, comes from an image of when when a mason would cut stone, take off all the rough edges so it fits seamlessly into a house. It also comes from building roads. When you came to a place where there was no road, in like in a valley, you would cut all the trees down, you'd take out all the stumps, you'd remove all the rocks, and then you'd build the road through. That's what handling the word of truth means. You make the path straight, you make the things fit correctly. So then the question we need to ask is, well, how do we handle God's word, the scriptures, the Bible, the word of truth properly? Well, first and foremost, Paul is saying to Timothy and to all of us, God is saying to all of us, you don't just read scripture, you live under scripture. So I'm going to ask for everyone's attention. Could you just look at the screen for a sec? Your device. Everyone needs to hear this. The authority is not your experience. The, the authority is not your cultural insight. The authority, oh, this is important, is not your pain. So many people in the last three years, I've heard this thing. My pain defines who I am, so I have authority. No, no, no. Your story is not the authority. Your personal rights aren't the authority. It's not your agenda. That's why pastors and all Christians have an external authority beyond themselves. See, every culture needs to be corrected by Scripture. Every person has to be corrected by Scripture. It's the authority, not us. It's God's Word. Years ago, I was hanging out with someone, and they sort of quickly said, oh man, Catholic priests should never speak about marriage. They've never been married. I went, whoa, 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 whoa. Just because they haven't experienced it, they can't speak into it? Oh, in other words, you're telling me that authority is experienced. No, it's not. A Catholic priest, if they're doing their job, can go to the scriptures. And even if they never get married, ever, they can speak en masse into marriage because the scripture has authority to define and to challenge marriage. You know that you are close to false teaching when your pain, your story, or your insight has more authority. In other words, you're correcting things, not scripture's not correcting you. So so how does one handle the word of God correctly? Well, first, you need to ask, what did it mean to the original hearer? What was the historical context, the social context, the religious context? Oh, and this is really critical. And the words you're reading on the page, what did they actually mean then, not today? See, when you know what it originally meant, then you get to apply it to yourself, your family, your culture, your local church. But you can't make the scriptures what you want them to be. And you cannot change the words or their meaning to suit what you feel today. Now, Paul hits the issue again, verse 16, avoid godless chatter uh, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Now, that phrase godless chatter is right from 1 Timothy 6.20. It's it's Paul writing a second time and he refers back to it. 1 Timothy 6.20, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Godless chatter is code for false teaching. And notice the false teachers call their teaching knowledge. You know that this godless chatter is in the room when Christians begin to reject the physical resurrection of Jesus, like the virgin birth, like the authority of scripture, like Jesus being fully God and fully human, the reality of judgment at the end of time. Here's a great example. Well, God is love. He's just going to accept everything we want and everyone's going to go to heaven. That's not biblical. 
The more you let culture or experience or pain or philosophy or your religious understanding have a greater say than the Bible, you are moving towards a critical condition called godless chatter and you're about to step on the mine. And, and Paul amazingly says, the more you expose yourself to false teaching, the more you eat it, the more you'll become addicted to it, and you will grow more and more in an ungodly manner. And again, let me repeat this. This is why false teaching is so scary, because false teachers think they're doing the will of God and speaking for God and bringing his kingdom down on earth, but actually they're growing people not in godliness, but ungodliness. It says in verse 17, their teaching will spread like gangrene. Paul uses this graphic uh, medical image. Before antiseptic, if you got gangrene and it wasn't contained, they just had to cut your leg off or your arm off. It, it kills what is healthy. Let me give you a modern example. This, this is like saying false teaching is like stage four cancer. You don't know you have it. You're living life. Suddenly you feel a little sick. You go in and it's all through your body and it's too late. Now, Paul steps back and he speaks into a very particular situation Timothy is dealing with in his community. He says in verse 17, among them, these false teachers are Hymenaeus and Philetus. They've departed from the truth. They say their resurrection has already taken place and destroyed the faith of some. Now, Paul has already referred to this false teacher, one of them, in 1 Timothy 1.9. This is what it reads, holding on to the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so ship, suffered shipwreck with regard to faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I've handed over to Satan to, to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, I don't have time to preach on what that means. But in 1 Timothy, these teachers are basically saying, because you're saved and Jesus is giving you grace, you can live any way you want. You don't need to obey. Just live your life. But now by 2 Timothy, these so-called Christian leaders, pastors, elders, connect group leaders have started saying that the resurrection has already happened. And see, as they talk, it feels so Christian. It sounds so Christian. They use Christian words. But Paul says they have shipwrecked and departed and gone astray. This is buying into the culture of the day, the Greek philosophy. Remember, we talked about this, that taught that actually the physical was bad and the spiritual was good. So the physical resurrection of Jesus, no, 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 no. It's a spiritual thing. It's an enlightenment thing. But what has Paul taught? What have all Christians taught? 1 Corinthians 5, 17, if Jesus has not been raised physically, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who have died in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we, we are of all people most to be pitied. And what's so interesting, this is my observation. Every time someone begins to mess with physical resurrection of Jesus, then they very quickly throw it a second coming and judgment. By the way, this happens all around us today. Oh yes, Jesus rose, but not literally. Oh, oh yes, Jesus rose, but there, there's no judgment. Oh, oh yes, Jesus rose, but you know, they destroy the faith of honest Christians. Sanctus churches, I've taught you before, let me do it again. False teaching, not secondary disputable teaching, false teaching always appears in three ways. Ready? Write this down. False ideas about who God is, and what he's actually done. False ideas of how to meet God and get saved. And false ideas of how you get to live after you meet God in a real and personal way through Jesus. False teaching always appears in those three places. And Christian false teachers will always encourage you to violate, break, or to change or add to the ethical and doctrinal core of the Christian faith and say it's still Christian. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Now, I just need to 
stop. I'm going to ask for your attention again. If you're on an iPad or looking at a TV or listening, just can you really give me your focus for a second? If you truly take this seriously, if, if truly you're like, oh my goodness, like this has eternal consequence. If you want to understand what's black and white, what's gray, what's permittable, what's not permittable, what's debatable, what's not debatable, what we can agree to disagree on and what's neutral. I'm going to ask all of you listening today, whether you go to Sanctus Church or not, to go above and beyond this week and go back and listen to a mini-series I preached in March of 2017 out of the book of Jude. It's only three weeks. In that series, I outline every way false teaching shows up, who God is, how to meet him, and how you get to live afterwards. In Jude, Jesus' half-brother, he addresses all three of those very well. And if false teaching is that dangerous... I'm going to ask everyone this week to go above and beyond, go back to the podcast and listen to it so you can evaluate, where am I really at? Now, Paul is saying to Timothy, yeah, this is scary. Yeah, it's bad. And yes, there's false teaching and it's actually getting out of control. But just so you know, I want you to have hope. There is a permanent foundation that cannot be touched. God's work and his will and his people will not be overcome. Verse 19, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed within this inscription. The Lord knows who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So first of all, God has placed his seal in the church. There are two images of a seal. Number one, when you build a building, there's a cornerstone and the person who owns it puts their physical seal on it. The second one comes from The establishment of law in ancient times, you get wax, a signet ring, your house or your crest or your authorities on the ring, you stamp it, it becomes law. Here's what's being taught. God owns the real church and it's immovable. It's also pretty amazing because what's inferred here is if you touch the house or try changing the law, you're going to mess with the owner or the person who wrote the law. In other words, if you mess with the church, the owner of the church is going to come for you. So listen up, false teachers. Second, see that phrase, the Lord knows who are his? That's just not a random phrase. That's an exact quote from number 16. Why does Paul bring this up? Let me tell you why. In number 16, Moses and Aaron are leading the people of God. And a guy named Korah, with 200, I think, and 52 other leaders, show up and say to Moses and Aaron, you're not the only ones who are in charge. Now, God had already declared, actually, to the people that Moses and Aaron were the leaders. His word had been established. Korah and these leaders say, we're holy and you're holy. We should have the same access to God you have. And we think you're prideful. And basically Korah and these leaders, not the people, the leaders, rebel against Moses and Aaron's leadership and break God's word. They become false teachers, even though they're in the community. And it says that God kills them. And the people realize the word of God is not to be messed with. And so this is what Paul's saying is, just so you understand, these false teachers are just like those false teachers and God is going to deal with them and you should separate yourself from this falseness. And this is why he begins to use this incredibly wild image next. He says, you know, there's uh, big houses and most people uh, would go, okay, I understand that. I've owned one of those. I've worked in one of those. I've admired one of those when I've walked by. He says, the church is like a large house. And in a large house, there are articles not just of gold and silver, but wood and clay, some for special purposes, others for common use. Now, this is not just saying, hey, in your house, there's good china and the stuff from Ikea, and they have different purposes, though true. The word common use, if you're taking notes, you need to write this down, has real strong overtones of dishonor, disgrace, and and, and shame. 
Now, many of you come from non-Western cultures, so you're going to get this. Many of you come from cultures where you never misuse your left hand. Anyone know what I'm talking about? If you've come from certain cultures, you know this. Your left hand, you never use it to greet someone. You never use it to eat, ever. You use this to wipe. That's what this is for. This is for other things. This is for one other thing. This is incredibly insulting if you do this. That's what's going on here. Remember, in Paul's day, there's not a lot of indoor plumbing as we know it. Washrooms, running water, like we take, uh, we just live with today. And their bodies 2,000 years ago are the same as ours. So since there wasn't just, you know, the powder room around the corner, what do you do at three o'clock in the morning? Well, they used to have this thing called a chamber pot. Where you had a pot in the room in the middle of the night, if you had to poop or pee, that's where you did it, in the pot. And grossly, it probably sat there all night till the morning. That's what's being inferred by common use. Not so nice use. So you got the pot for poop, and then you got the stuff to eat from. And then Paul does something so wild. Get ready, everyone. Those who clean themselves from the ladder, the, the place where you poop, will be instruments for a special purpose, made wholly useful for the master, prepared to do any good work. So he says, if you're going to deal with false teaching, you're like someone who's got pee and poop in the pot that has to be cleaned so you can be used for a different thing. So the chamber pot has to be disinfected for real, scrubbed before it can be used differently. So I want you to imagine this today. Some of you are like already freaking out. Imagine how much cleaning you would do when the pot you used for pooping now is going to be the pot you use four hours later to make your stew or your curry or your soup or roast the chicken. Some of you are like, I'm burning the pot. No, you can't because you don't got the money. It's not a disposable culture. So what would you do? Well, you would wash that pot. You would wash that pot. You would wash that pot. You'd bleach that pot. You would wash it and wash it again. Then you'd have to get psychologically over the thing that you pooped in it. And now you're going to eat from it. But here's Paul's point. If you want to move from that to that, you need to clean it. And then we're like, where's the soap? And he says, oh, let me tell you where the soap is. Verse 22, flee from evil desires of youth. Pursue righteousness, faith, and love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So what's the stuff in the pot? Well, it's the evil desires of youth, which false teachers, by the way, always say are okay. Well, there's a sexual element to this. The Bible is clear about the boundaries in which sexuality is allowed to be enjoyed and expressed under God's blessing. And false teachers always show their hand here. This is one of the greatest forms of false teaching in the Canadian church today. Jude 4 makes it so clear. Speaking about false teachers, they say, he says, they are ungodly people who to pervert the grace of our God into a license for, that word immorality is sexual in this case, sexual immorality, de denying Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. In other words, you got grace, sexually act any way you want, God's fine. But there's so much more going on than just sexual. Chuck Swindoll helped me a lot this week in his commentary when he outlined all the desires of youth. He wrote, it's a lust for money. It's a lust for power and control. It's a lust for admiration. It's a lust for achievement. People are consumed by these lusts. They tend to become impertinent, dogmatic, competitive, argumentative, harsh, self-important. Just the kind of personality that would break a congregation into a thousand fractions. In other words, the young, as an example, tend to be more argumentative, hormone-filled, not full of wisdom. I know better than the last generation. I want to win even though I don't know all the truth. So he says, you got to... No, to that. And then he says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. 
Now, this command goes in two directions, obviously with Christians and non-Christians. Yes, it's important to talk about theology. Yes, it's fun for us who love that. Yes, it's important to find out where we land on secondary issues, women in ministry, spiritual gifts, mode of baptism. But you never cross the line in red line issues. And even more so, he's saying, don't quarrel with non-Christians. Kindly debate, sure, not even debate. Share, yes, but be careful. As again, Swindoll rightly said, leaders don't fight, they influence. Oh, really, this is the book of Proverbs coming home. Proverbs 17, 27, the one who has knowledge uses their words with restraint. And whoever has understanding is even-tempered. These false teachers are engaging in tactics of word fights and sarcasm and personal attack. And he's like, nope. And then he says in verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, must be kind to everybody, able to teach, and not resentful. How are you feeling about your social media world now? Be gentle, don't compromise on truth. Be clear and direct in the gospel, but be long-suffering. A real pastor, a real Christian leader must be patient with those that are even in error. And why do this? Why not just bang the dust off your feet and say you're stupid and wrong and you can't even see the pink elephant in the room? Because there's a chance, a real chance, that those who are opposing the truth and actually are false teachers could still be what? Saved. And this is where we come to this really uncomfortable, willing surrender point where we ask God to do the impossible work. I love when one wrote, what young people often fail to appreciate, it's not the force of personality or the cleverness of an argument that will persuade someone into repentance. It's God who, rich in his mercy, grants repentance to someone. And this God-inspired repentance is the path to someone coming to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 25, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap, which is from the devil, who's taken them captive to do his will. Whoa, sit with this. Here are these powerful statements. Those who lean into false teaching, those who come under the spell of false teaching, Those who are doing the false teaching are captivated by the lies and under the will and are doing the bidding of Satan. They are held under the devil's power, though they think they represent God's will and they think they know Jesus and they think they're pointing to Jesus. They're actually pointing people away from Jesus. Paul says we need to point them to the truth. Let the scriptures have the final say, but let God deal with the results. Those who are under false teaching and false teachers themselves will have to take personal responsibility and repent under a pure gospel that brings life. Remember, Paul is talking about perseverance and enduring. And as we're going through 2 Timothy, we're asking, Lord, what are you saying to the church? Well, number one, how do you persevere as a Christian in any season? You live joyfully under the scripture, not above it. The Bible is life-giving. The Bible is Jesus honoring and Jesus pointing. The Bible is God revealing. It is hope-giving. It's protection against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Bible is the thing that corrects you. You don't correct the Bible. The Bible is actually God's living active word that comes to each one of our ethnic cultures and says to all of our cultures, oh, no, 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 no. 
I now change this about your culture because it's not kingdom oriented. I affirm this, but I change that. And it, it's multidirectional. It, it, it confronts all of us. <laughs> we live under it because it's the bread of life. Number two, really important question. Are you a false teacher? <laughs> Are you under the spell of false teaching? Okay, let me say this again. And I, I'd never caught this before. In every book in the New Testament, false teaching is brought up, outlined, or confronted. It is one of the critical key things that runs all through Matthew to Revelation. Again, false teaching takes three forms. False ideas about who God is, false ideas of how you meet God, and false ideas of how you get to live after you meet God through Jesus in a personal way. Again, if you deny Jesus is God or historically existed or deny the physical resurrection but claim to be a Christian, you're under false teaching. And it's serious. But more, again, I want to stress this. I'm going to ask all of you to go back. Some of you already listened to it. Go back again and listen to the Jude series and honestly evaluate at this moment. What do I believe? What do I think? What am I sharing? What am I teaching and influencing others to believe? Lots of us are going, oh, John, I don't need to do that. I, I'm fine. I'm good. I've gone to church for years. I've got a Bible. I even know you personally, John. We're all good. No, 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 no. See, hear this again. False teaching is so subtle, we need to go back and look. Please go back and listen. And again, why is Paul bringing this up? Because it's like that unexploded mine. As the church is trying to endure during persecution and during all these difficult things, the most devastating thing that could happen when all the pressure on the outside is so bad is to step on a landmine and get destroyed from the inside. COVID's taking place. Political stuff is taking place. Racial tension, globalization, all the stuff is... So the church is trying to stay together. And wouldn't it be terrible if, oh, we step on a landmine right in the middle and it kills us? See, that's the critical thing we need to think through. Here's the last thing. Be direct, but be gentle with those who believe false things. And be doubly gentle with unbelievers. You know, the older I'm getting, I'm halfway through now, I'm 45. I find we become more gentle when we actually believe the thing we believe is actually true. I don't need to bring my personality to win this thing. I don't need to bring all the knowledge and background. Though that's important, it's just true. So I don't have to bring vibrato or intensity. It's just true. The goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to see salvation. Here's the most critical thing I want to ask. The person that you cannot stand theologically or online politically, do you want them to even be saved? Like really saved? Paul says, be a church that's not quarrelsome. Be a church that's not resentful. In other words, be willing to be long-suffering. As people attack you, you love them back. Opponents must be gently instructed, so tell them the truth of Scripture and a hope that God will do the repenting, uh, the, lead them to repentance. So here's where I want to end. And Holy Spirit, would you speak across the vast amount of people that connect to Sanctus Church? Is there someone the Holy Spirit is asking you to go gently instruct? Where you need to say, actually, that's not true. This, this is true. Or I think more of us might need to hand over loved ones, friends, family members, or people we've never met who we watch online somewhere else and ask them, ask God to lead them into a godly repentance that leads to life. To persevere, you must know truth. To persevere, you must know the difference between a landmine and something that is not deadly. To persevere, we have to be gentle. 
to persevere, we need to want the salvation of people around us. So thank you, Holy Spirit. You're called the Spirit of Truth. Thank you, Jesus. You claim to be the truth. Thank you, God, that you, of course, are truth. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, send out the Spirit to do the work among us to help us to persevere. Uh, I would ask now, Lord, that you would convict any person under false teaching, anyone who's teaching falseness or is about to be seduced by it, would you say to them loudly, this is false, so they can be saved. Show us where the landmines are. Lead us into a love for the scriptures to live under it. And deeper than that, would you show certain people who they need to gently instruct and or give over to the Lord. Thanks, Lord, that you're continuing to do this unusual work week in and week out in our church. All glory be to God the Father who has sealed the church. All glory be to Jesus Christ, the head of the church. All glory be to the Holy Spirit who preserves the church. And we all said together, amen. I can't wait to see you next week as Paul then moves to, you know, a small little conversation about the end times. Hmm. Should be interesting. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.